It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the Red Box podcast from The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. This is part two of our special live debate, Britain after Brexit, where with an audience of 250 Times readers, I was joined by columnists Matthew Powers and Alice Thompson and sketch writer Patrick Kidd to ask what does Brexit means Brexit actually mean and is Theresa May the right person to deliver it. After picking over some of the key issues in part one, now in part two we take some questions from the audience. We can't promise to know the answers, but we'll give them a go. Yeah, I think you, you had your hand up first. If you wait just for a second, I've, I've typically chosen someone as far away from the microphone as possible. There we are, let, let the microphone come to you. Matthew, it's um, hard for me to hear you say you're embarrassed of a country that voted for Brexit. I voted for Brexit, and you don't know me, or why I voted for Brexit, or the hundreds of thousands or millions of others who also voted for Brexit. So without knowing us, how can you be embarrassed of us? I'm, I'm embarrassed at the arguments that made such headway during the campaign. I'm, I'm really embarrassed at the arguments on immigration and the dislike that has been stirred up against immigrants. Of course I don't accuse everyone who voted for, for Brexit of uh, subscribing to those arguments, but the, 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 there isn't any doubt in my mind which, which, which of the winds which blew blew the hardest and, and, and blew strongest in the direction of leave. And, and the whole immigration thing still makes me feel ashamed a to be British. Gentleman there with his hand. Just wait with the microphone. Thank you. Everything that you've discussed so far has been internal within the UK. But one of the things you haven't actually mentioned is what effect this is having or had on Europe itself. I voted for Brexit, and one of the reasons I voted was I was very concerned about the EU and the way and where it was going. I didn't like the uh, statements that were coming from Juncker that we should expand and include Albania, Macedonia, Montenegro, uh, and Serbia, uh, and, and include them, because I didn't think we'd come to grips with what we've already done with uh, with the Eastern Europe. I don't mind Eastern Europeans being here at all, but I really wonder how it is its benefit to Poland to have a million of their best and brightest, not in Poland developing their economy, but here in the United Kingdom. I also look at the southern part of Europe, and it concerns me that Greece 
does need a bailout, and that's not been addressed. Italian banks probably don't suffer, would not pass stress tests. Spain does not have a government, and it's got to have yet another election, probably by the end of the year. France is going to have divisive elections next year. Europe itself is now, and the EU is going to be suffering from a deficit in our contribution. There are many, many factors here, and I'd be very grateful for some comments about what's actually happening in Europe itself. Thank you. I think you're right. I mean, I'm fascinated that we spent so much time looking at the American elections when the interesting elections for us are going to be in France and Germany, and they are coming up. And I think uh, mine was almost the opposite, that I felt that Britain was, that actually that Europe was so destabilized now, and if Angela Merkel goes, there are going to be so few very strong people at the top that actually we needed to stay and to try and change the direction and help it from within, which is why I went the other way from you. Um, but I feel that you're going to have, it's going to be almost leaderless soon, in that the very strong people at the top aren't going to be there. And you look at, you know, when it was Thatcher, it was Margaret Thatcher and Mitterrand and Cole, and there were really big figures out there. And now, you know, the kind of people we're dealing with are very, very different and aren't strong enough, I think, to pull it all together. And I think with the terrorism which has been happening over the summer, there's so many different issues that we really need to pull together on. It's going to be very, very hard now, which is why, in a way, I am disappointed we're not in there doing something. But I think we still can lead from outside to a certain extent. I was just going to say on this gentleman's point, and, and I think a lot of people who, who voted Brexit weren't doing it because they're racist at all. Um, they, they may feel that, um, that the country can't deal, we don't have the infrastructure to deal with extra numbers of people, but I don't, don't think it's some sort of 1970s view of foreigners. But I think there is a worry that Europe doesn't want to change. We hear talk about there being a single European army, about um, single coordination of the police force and stuff like that. And Cameron undermined his argument by going to 27 different countries in very quick time. Really, I mean, the amount of asparagus he ate, by the way, he said. He went <laughs> ate asparagus at every single place he went to, apart from in Poland, where they gave him asparagus for breakfast as well. Um, but he really had to prostitute himself, and he got nothing for it. He asked for very little. He got less. And I think people who look at Europe and think, what are we getting out of, out of it, will have felt not so much betrayed by the Prime Minister, but dismayed that he could get nothing, that we had no saying power, um, that we uh, can't overturn things so easily in the Parliament. Now, I, I voted Remain, grudgingly, but I, I, I did vote Remain, but I, I can really appreciate your, your argument that there are big problems in Europe, and, and I think they will struggle without us. And, any of you, what do you make of the idea that, that now we have voters to leave, that, that EU leaders might quietly wish that they'd, they'd done a bit more and given David Cameron a better deal. I'm sure that's right. And I think if David Cameron had a, must have had a serious failure of nerve right towards the end, he should have um, spoken particularly to Angela Merkel and said, look, if you don't give us something, something token perhaps on immigration, an emergency break, I am not going to recommend uh, that, that uh, my countrymen vote, vote remain. I, I, I think he, if he had presented her with that ultimatum, he might just have got what he wanted. And actually, the timing for him was quite good, because Germany at the time is in the grip of its... Yes. ...after uh, Angela Merkel had opened the doors to uh, yeah. Syrian refugees. And there was, a, in lots of European countries, suddenly immigration and free mo freedom of movement what didn't seem she like such a brilliant idea. point, I think, actually, for her. I mean, she's been such a huge figure, and I think she was at her weakest point then, because she'd made her one major mistake. But Cameron did not have to have a referendum this year. 
He had said in the manifesto he would hold on by, by 2017. Um, he could have ignored that altogether. Frankly, once he won the election, he can do what he likes, and, and if he's not going to be prime minister by the next election, then uh, uh, so it's being very cynical. But he, he didn't have to follow his manifesto pledge, it's been known. Um, but he, he didn't have to do it in 2016. He also, when he was doing his tour of the European capitals, eating all that asparagus, he didn't have to then follow that by holding it this year. He could have said to them, you're giving me nothing, I'm going to come back to you next year when France is having an election, when Germany is having an election, and frankly, it's going to be tough for you if I'm creating problems. Um, and so, you know... I, I, yeah, thank you. <laughs> that, that's a sort of clap, is it? Yeah. <laughs> OK, let's, um, let's move on. Let's take another question. Let's go lady right at the back over there. Um, I think we've managed to go for nearly 55 minutes without actually mentioning UKIP. And I just wondered what the panel's view of UKIP in the party politics was of this. Um, I think Nigel Farage is probably the most successful politician that we've seen for a long time. And to me, that is baffling. I spent months doing, um, we did a very long series, Rachel Sylvester and I, on UKIP. And I still couldn't bring myself to take him sort of seriously on any level a couple of years ago. And yet everyone says that all politicians' careers end in failure. His hasn't ended in failure. He's the only exception. And that is rather extraordinary, I think. Um, I mean, I don't admire him in any way, if I'm honest. And I found him very difficult. And I just remember, always remember that scene when he staggers out of the plane after he crashed. And you think it's extraordinary that someone... You know, like him, did come back. But I think the plane crash showed that he, what he had was he was incredibly tenacious. I mean, he did keep going, and you have to admire him for that. Um, but I now look at him with Donald Trump, and I think, you know, please no. <laughs> Matthew, but to what extent do you think he deserves the credit for the result? Because actually he was completely sidelined by vote leave and was sort of reduced to trundling around in a purple bus. He wasn't, despite what Donald Trump said... He wasn't the, the guy that won the referendum. Well, I don't know. I think, I think he did a lot um, to, to get immigration up and running as an issue during the campaign, uh, even if he, he didn't take a, a central part in, in the campaigning. I, 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 I couldn't use the word credit uh, for what he's done, but uh, I, I, it is the case, I think, that we wouldn't be where we are if it, if it, if it weren't for the, the battle that he's fought. Uh, he and, and there are shadowy people like Daniel Hannan who, who, who uh, deserve, if deserve is the word, uh, a little bit of the credit for, 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 the, for this too. Uh, I, I just can't bear UKIP. I, uh, I know lots of nice people who vote for UKIP. I have friends who vote for UKIP. But it seems to me one of those political parties that, that feasts on negativism, that feasts on fear, that feasts on nostalgia, that, that feasts on paranoia, that, that feasts on suggesting to people subliminally that everything that's wrong with their lives and, and with the country and with the world as it is is somehow somebody else's fault, in this case, the, the, the Europeans or, or, the, or the, the immigrants. I can't, I can't stand them. I, I think Farage deserves the credit for getting the referendum, not so much for winning it. But in, in 2014, at the end of the year, the Times named Nigel Farage as our person of the year. We had a, at the annual competition at Christmas time. We're filling some space with we on holiday. And um, <laughs> the reason we did that, and it's not an endorsement, although I got an enormous number of complaints, as I'm sure most of my colleagues did, from, from people who said, how could you, you endorse? Most of them seem to be Cornish fishermen for some reason. <laughs> who are just, but... Um, 
was because there, there had been the European elections that UKIP had, had won, and the momentum was such that Cameron felt he had to promise a referendum. Uh, and so Farage does deserve credit for getting that referendum. Um, he's an extraordinary force of nature. I mean, his speeches, whether you like him or, or not, are well delivered for the audience. Um, and he whips them up far better than Trump does. Uh, and I he, as you say, he's gone out on, on a high. He's got what he wants, although he may not get what he wanted because, of course, Brexit um, is still in the future subjunctive rather than the perfect. But he, um, he, he will be remembered as, 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 as changing politics for, for, for good or I once spoke to someone who'd been his teacher at Dulwich College, and this teacher said that he remembered when Farage left Dulwich, that uh, I said to him, I have a feeling, Farage, that you are going to go far in life, but whether it's in fame or infamy, I cannot tell. <laughs> to which Farage replied, as long as I go far, sir. <laughs> but he's an extraordinary person, and, and they are going to be left with, with a pygmy, whoever follows him. And Dan James has some merits. I'm very disappointed Stephen Wolfe wasn't one of the candidates because on the day of the referendum, uh, he was an MEP in the Northwest, he read a poem. He stood up in front of a podium, read what he'd written himself, and it had the wonderful line, true-born men and women cry, oh, why, oh, why, oh, why, oh, why. I thought, this is someone I want in politics. But unfortunately, he, he, he didn't um, post his application form to be leader in time. And it also turned out he hadn't actually paid his subscription fees for last season. <laughs> so it's not just Labour that have a chaotic... Uh, but going, going back to the original question, is, is the reason we didn't talk about them because UKIP ceased to, to be when Nigel Farage stood down? The, 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 the political force of UKIP was actually the political force of Nigel Farage. Well, he, he'll be back, though. I have no doubt at all that he'll be. As leader he'll of be UKIP? Back. Yes, he'll wait for whoever is elected leader of the party to, to stumble and fumble and fail, and, and there'll be an, an, another comeback. And I, it's too early to, to write UKIP off. They, they, they've gone rather quiet now, having, as it were, pushed so hard at the door, and the door is suddenly opened, and they fall flat because there's nothing more for them to do. But... As the Brexit negotiations proceed, uh, the Brexit people will begin to fall out among themselves as to what Brexit means, and uh, UKIP will, will be back uh, pushing the hard line, and I, I expect to see Nigel Farage at the head of it. And I guess one of the interesting things is that for a long time, conventional wisdom was that UKIP posed the threat to the Tory party, and actually we now appear to be in the position, particularly if you look at what's happening in northern uh, parts of England, that actually they pose a bigger threat to the Labour Party, and the Labour Party is collapsing in those areas, and UKIP is hoovering up those former industrial areas, working class vote, in a way that we, we never, everyone assumed they were actually eating into the well, Tories. Well, that's what, I mean, the pollsters have got it wrong for so long, that as we keep having these bizarre swings when no one realises, so no one realised that actually UKIP was going to take votes from Labour, and we also didn't realise that the Liberal Democrat vote was going to totally implode at the last election. That's something, we haven't mentioned the Liberal Democrats either, but there are moments when actually they did matter. So the fact they lost so spectacularly meant that there was no way there could be a coalition. And actually, if there'd been a coalition, I think there's less likelihood of there being a referendum, because I think Nick Clegg would have said, you know what, we're not doing this now. I don't want to. And actually, I think David Cameron would have said, thank God, in private, and said in public, God, Nick Clegg's a total nightmare. You know, we've had to do this, and it's all because of him. They could have blamed the Liberal Democrats game, but they couldn't, because actually, they'd shafted them so badly in the election campaign that they'd sort of pretty much disappeared. And at the time, they were thrilled by that. But I think in retrospect, they might look back and think, we wish we'd had another coalition. Uh, let's go for the gentleman over there. 
Well, we'll try and get around everyone. We won't stay till midnight, but we'll try and, uh, we'll try and um, get to everyone. First off, thanks for an interesting discussion so far. Um, you mentioned at the start of the discussion um, the nature of the campaigns, and they were flinging lies at each other. Matthew, I think you talked um, saying whoever could lie the most convincingly told the truth. Um, <clears throat> is truth no longer a commodity in British politics? Is it going to continue like this at future elections, future hustings, etc.? Or have we reached the bottom of the gutter in terms of British politics, the lies, the negativity, and is it going to get better from here? Well, I, I, I think there was a bit of a, a reaction to, to the, the, the level of dishonesty uh, in the campaign on, on, on both sides. I, I think a reaction against it, and I, I hope that people will learn from that. It's quite right that everybody acknowledged that that figure on the side of the, the leave bus, was it 355 million a week, was, was the wrong figure. It was 200 and something or other. And you, you, don't, you don't give the gross figure, you want to give the net figure. Everybody acknowledged that, but, but somehow people just grinned and carried on and, and posed standing next to the bus. And there was a general feeling that you could just shrug and wink, and it, it didn't matter. I think there's been uh, a, a reaction against that, and I, I, so I hope that represents the the low point rather than a continuing decline. I think the low point for me was um, when Michael Gove said that you shouldn't trust the experts. I did <laughs> because I think He's in the end. <laughs> But journalists do trust the experts, actually. I mean, we're constantly going to the experts to quote and, to, you know, we do try and use statistics that we think we can back up, actually. I mean, you might not believe this, but, you know, when we write our columns, we do try and research them, don't we? And we do go to people we think have the answers. And when Michael Gove said, there's no point, you thought, well, who are we going to talk to then? And actually, you know, these experts shouldn't all be denigrated. And you knew what he was saying, and it was a very clever thing to say, actually, because what it meant was actually don't trust the establishment, don't trust the people who think they know and who are being pompous and who think they're overeducated. But I thought it was a very dangerous moment, because actually what it was saying was it does nothing like that matters, just you know, go to your basest instincts, and I thought that was wrong. And actually what we discovered in a few uh, days was that you should be careful trusting Michael Gove. Yeah. Oh, well, that's what Boris Johnson discovered, anyway. Uh, yes, gentlemen here, you've had your hand up for a while. Thanks very much. Um, England and Wales voted one way, Scotland and Northern Ireland another. Is the United Kingdom going to survive? Wow. Well, uh, uh, there was a point on referendum night when it looked like it'd be a landslide for Remain when Gibraltar was 96%. You, you're, you're absolutely right, sir, that um, there are splits, but we are... I mean, London, for instance, was, was pro-Remain. I'd quite like to turn the M25 into a moat and have London as, as declare UDI, perhaps. But um, I, I think if we accept that we're United Kingdom, we have to accept we're going to disagree on matters of policy, big matters of policy. And we, we are a nation, and, and um, if there's a majority in the nation, that's the way it is. But it creates huge problems. Will there be a second referendum in, in, in Scotland? Do, do the SNP actually want a second referendum right now um, when their economy is, when the oil revenues aren't doing so well? Uh, I don't know. It creates huge problems. And there's no doubt why Theresa May went off to the proms and lords instead of uh, <laughs> looking at it. But it would be interesting to see what happens when we do get a deal of some sort. I and mean, there might be... Scotland's uh, concern about immigration is in high in Scotland as it is in England. But... 
some of the things that we will be able to do after Brexit will appeal to people in Scotland. And so actually, the idea of then rejoining the EU might not have the same appeal as it maybe it did voting to stay in, do you think? Well, I think, I mean, we differ very much on this. I'm half Scottish, so I feel very, very passionately that Scotland must stay in the Union. I felt it more strongly than the European Union, actually. I really minded about Scotland being part of Britain. Um, but I think I'm probably not the majority. Um, but I do feel that now we're more likely to have Scotland staying because I think the Scottish actually look at it now and think we don't want another referendum. And they are very canny and they are going to look at the economics of it. And the economics of it are appalling now for them going on their own. And they're not going to want And they look at Europe and they look what's happening to Greece and they're not going to be thinking, great, let's go for it. But actually, I think they're quite clever the SNP and looking at it as well and saying we're going to get the most out of it that we can. They're again they're exploiting the mm. resentment towards London to the best of their ability. The only thing I do think is that although Theresa May is good, I think the person who's really brilliant is Ruth Davidson. She's my probably favourite person in politics at the moment. Um, I wouldn't mind a reverse takeover with her taking over the Tory party in England, to <laughs> be totally England, honest. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So, Matthew, why, what, what's your view on Scotland, which differs so much to Alice's? Oh, it, it doesn't differ quite as much as Alice thinks. I, I don't want Scotland to leave uh, the Union, and I would be very sad if Scotland leaves the Union. But I, I've always believed that if, if a, an overwhelming or a, a clear majority of Scots consistently over a long time express the, the wish to leave, we, we, we shouldn't stand in their way. But I would be sad if it were to happen. Well, we would have to. We would have to then. But but it's just an obvious point, maybe. But it's a little bit of a um, what's the word? It's a rather crude representation of the position to say that England and Wales voted to leave and Scotland voted to stay. Millions and millions of people in England and Wales voted to stay, and millions voted to leave in in Scotland. And we're we're only talking ten percentage points one way or the other. So I, I don't think we need to see the individual countries in the United Kingdom as though they were personalities, individual voters who had decided they wanted to leave or to stay. They're composed of millions of people with millions of different opinions. But then they've all got a different view on what Brexit means. Yes. yes. Uh, let's take another question. Uh, lady down at the front. Sorry, I've got a few questions. I don't know which one to ask. Um, the easy think, one. Do you think the general public actually knew what they were voted for, voting for, is my first question. Um, and my second question was, when do you think Article 50 should be uh, implemented? You know, isn't that the uncertainty that business does not like? And, you know, if we could have that for years, that's what's going to impact the UK. When should Article 50 be implemented? Alice, when, when should it, or when do you think it will be? I think as soon as possible, to be honest now. I think you're right. I think that I don't think business is doing badly, as badly as I thought it would. I thought we would, as a country, be almost imploding by now. I thought, I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated at how well Britain has done since. And I think that businesses aren't doing nearly as bad as they, they genuinely thought. I don't think they were stirring things up during the campaign. I think a lot of businesses did think it was going to be very, very difficult if we had Brexit. I don't think it is going to be quite as difficult. But I do think we need certainty pretty soon, to be honest. And I can't, your first question was... Yeah, I I always have this feeling that the the public always get it right, and they always you know they always get the right result at elections. And this this has been the hardest really result for me because it's the first time I haven't thought they've got it right, and I've wanted to say you know actually I think you've got it completely wrong. And then I tried to convince myself it was because it was a referendum that I thought they've got it wrong, and that referendums are very different. But instinctively, what I like to always feel is that Britain gets it right at elections. I I don't think that 
a lot of people did realise entirely what they were voting for. I, I know that a lot of people thought that David Cameron would stay on as Prime Minister, and indeed he had said he would stay on as Prime Minister, but to my great surprise, a lot of people appear to have believed him, and there was never any prospect. <laughs> that any wasn't prospect, true either. Never any prospect <laughs> that he would stay on as Prime Minister if, if it were, were lost, to the extent that, that people didn't know what they were voting for and haven't known what we have voted for, then it's a good thing if we put off triggering Article 50 as long as we can so that a clearer picture emerges about what it is that we're, we're going into. Uh, until, we know, until we know what Britain's negotiating position is going to be and until we have some inkling of what our European allies' counter offer is going to be and until people can feel their way towards some sort of possible consensus between us and the rest of the European Union as to the shape of our departure, um, I shall not want anybody to trigger anything. And Patrick, it's human nature, isn't it? You we won't get uh, the best idea of getting a, getting a good deal from the rest of Europe. That'll only come before we trigger Article 50, won't it? Yes, and I think there's a long journey ahead, months, mm. if not years, and we won't have anything, I think, until the start of, of, of next year. As far as whether people knew what they were voting for. I would love to have seen a poll, say, a week or two after the referendum of people who'd voted for Brexit who then looked at what was happening to the pound and the, the stock market and stuff like that and um, were reconsidering, and then what they think now as things are stabilising. Because that first two weeks, I think people may have thought, as, as all the graphs went downwards like that, crikey, what have we done? Still, there was one... Ha I could bring you happy news from that because... There, there was one big gainer from that uh, the crash, which is that MEPs are paid their salaries in euros. <laughs> so a week, a week after the referendum, Nigel Farage was suddenly earning £8,000 more than he had been <laughs> the week before. Well, that, that, that's something to cheer everyone. Um, uh, let's take another question. Uh, the gentleman here. If you just wait for the microphone to come to you. I don't know how many of you with your busy lives um, heard Gussel O'Donnell's programme on Radio 4 uh, this morning, which touched at some of the complexities of this ridiculous Brexit exercise. And what I would like to have, I mean, Alice Thompson touched on this earlier, how are we going to prevent the entire governmental machine of this country being totally deflected into this blind alley of Brexiteering, whereas... And, and not tackling the real problems which this country faces mm. in terms of poverty, um, my, um, in, in terms of education, the police and the prison system and all the rest of it. <clears throat> Actually, what, what was interesting, Gus O'Donnell was a former cabinet secretary, he did an interview with the Times at the weekend and he said he didn't even think that Brexit was inevitable. He thought that there was... You know, even that wasn't certain. I think that was wishful thinking. Though, yes, I think it probably, it probably was. Well. And I think that's, as you're right, that is someone who's been in government and knows what a nightmare it's going to be for the next few years because you know, he has spent his life trying to get government policy through. And it, it, you are totally right. I think it's going to be very, very difficult to get anything else through at all. I mean, they have hardly got anything through this summer. Nick Timothy does have a series of plans, but I mean, it's going to be very difficult, I think, for him to implement almost anything when the entire machine is focused you know, on one area, and all the best and brightest, they keep saying they're having the best and brightest, but it's not great to pull all the best and brightest out onto one issue, really, is it? And it, it isn't just the, the, the government machine and the politicians and the civil services who are going to be obsessing 
about this. Um, I, I find a lot of our readers are at all. It, a lot of people in Britain are finding it quite difficult to think hard and straight about anything else but, but, but Brexit. And I know from reading the comments underneath. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The columns that I write that I've only to mention Brexit two or three times and I've got 500 comments. I write about anything else and there's 20 or 30 uh, comments. Uh, it, it, it is, it's going to obsess us and it's going to go on for years and there's nothing, sir, that you or I can do about it except go to Peru as I, I just did. <laughs> Patrick, your, your job is to go and listen to these politicians and then, and then try to paint a picture of their speech or their event and maybe possibly even be a bit rude about them. Do you fear getting utterly sick of writing about speeches about Brexit? Yes, yes, very possibly. <laughs> um, I mean, there were certainly some, some eccentric characters. I, I, the first day back after the referendum, um, I sit in the perch above the speaker's end uh, of, of the House of Commons, and uh, I saw Peter Boone, who's the MP for Wellingborough, who's been very anti-Europe. And as he came in, he had to push past Nicholas Soames, the grandson of Churchill, who had been very pro-Remain. And just as he came past, I saw Soames reach out and go straight across his backside. And I thought, actually, this could be quite fun. Actually, if they're gonna... um, so I'm, I'm not despairing that, they're, they're, that I'll get bored of it. But I mean, I think there'll be a lot of nitty gritty and technical stuff and lots of charts and diagrams. And, um, and you know, but my job is to focus on the characters and they're still going to be the venal and the stupid and, and, and the, um, the ambitious and we'll get through it. But we, we, we shouldn't, it shouldn't be doom and gloom. We've just come second in the Olympics. England have just recorded the highest ever one-day international score in a cricket match. Um, you know, things, things are lovely well, but the weather's great, so let's not be too down. And all that after Brexit. Yes, yes. The sun has come out, has it not? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right, let's take another question. Uh, gentleman in the middle, which i have been putting off coming to you because I didn't know how they were going to get a microphone to you, but we'll get a drone to bring it in or something. Here we go. There we are. It's coming down the, uh, coming down the line. I had uh, two questions. One was about the 19,000 laws that are going to be changed. What, what, I don't want to think. The interesting thing for me, 
this Home Secretary job that Theresa May had, going back to John Reed, was supposed to be a poison chalice. She was there for six years. Um, can you just tell us what happened in her six years? Was it good, bad, the prisons, the border, UK border? What actually happened when she was in charge? Um, I actually did two, two sort of long sort of service with Rachel Sylvester on her areas. One of them she asked us to do, actually, and she's the only cabinet minister that has ever come to Rachel Sylvester and I and said, can you look at this? And she asked us to look at the police, which I thought was fascinating that actually it came from her rather than us. And I think she did very well with the police, actually. And I think looking at it, having spent three months looking at the police, she really went for it. And she was incredibly feisty. And she put some very good appointments in. And she looked at it on a very interesting and a global level. And I think the police are a much fitter body than we actually realize now. And I think they actually went along with her in the end quite a lot. And she promoted a lot of women, which she refuses to admit was because they were women. but. A lot of her appointments were female and very good. But the side I don't think she was as good at is the previous one we've done was immigration. And I think she's fantastically good at not taking the blame for things, and particularly on immigration. So she, you know, we now we know that a lot of people were very upset about immigration during the referendum campaign. But she was there for six years dealing with it. And she really did do very, very little on it. And she wasn't engaged enough. And she didn't say enough about it. And she didn't do enough about it. And, it does worry me now that she's coming to it pretending that it had nothing to do with her when she was in charge. Why do you think? I agree. So I think she's very good at, at deflecting blame, to be totally honest, which is probably no bad thing as a prime minister. But it did surprise me how little blame she got and how many other people around her did get sacked, particularly over immigration. But the but, but, well, actually, one of the interesting things you talked about John Reed is that sort of whole period: John Reed, Charles Clark. Uh, Jackie Smith, actually the Home Office, particularly under Tony Blair, was a real sort of headline generating machine. If all else failed, a real crackdown on teenagers with knives or, you know, th th there was always a, a headline to be got out of a new law. And the trouble is with new laws, they don't always work and they rush them through and then there's too many people in prison and they haven't thought about that. And actually by not chasing the headlines, I think she got in less of a mess. Is that Yeah, I, I think I think too that she she may... She, she may have demonstrated um, that, that it's a law of politics as well as of nature, that if you stay very still, you're less likely to be eaten by <laughs> anybody else. <laughs> it worked for her in the uh, referendum campaign as well. It's useless on board agency. But I think that was the point that Jennifer was making. There's a whole, a whole string of stuff uh, that any previous uh, like passports being that people having to cancel their holidays mm. because passports been that would have got a Labour mm. Home Secretary yeah. out. And actually, uh, you know, I think Yvette Cooper's quite good in lots of ways, but actually she wasn't very effective as a shadow Home Secretary at really uh, hammering after Theresa May on uh, those issues. What, what's Theresa May like to sketch? Um, actually, well, I was just thinking my job is to be cynical most of the time about politicians, but there, there are a couple of occasions a year when when Parliament is at its best. And we had that one with the tragic killing of Joe Cox and Parliament's sombre reaction to that and the speeches was, was very moving. One of the other occasions was when Theresa May gave a statement on Hillsborough. And you know, a Tory Home Secretary opening an inquiry and and attacking the police and saying that they were they were wrong and but being prepared to work with the police to rebuild and to, to go into traditional labour areas. 
I was, was very powerful, and I thought actually it reflected well on her. And Andy Burnham's response, Burnham, for all his many flaws, has, has done good, good work on that too, showed that actually if there's a determination to right wrongs, and I think Theresa May on things like that has wanted to right wrongs. Um, but what she liked to sketch, she, I think she's going to grow on me. That first PMQ, from purely a professional point of view, was I was quite impressed with. Um, but otherwise, she's been... She always had the, the demeanour of a sort of a French cafe owner. <laughs> so she's got a slight, slightly bird look to her face and someone who comes over and slightly sniffily tells you you've ordered the wrong thing or you, you, when, when you meant to say regarde la mouche, she says it's la mouche or something like that. Um, slightly terrifying uh, schoolmistress perhaps. But she's growing on me. I, I, mean, I don't think she should overdo the Thatcher thing in PMQs, but it, it worked. Was it just because she only had one? She's been in the... Uh, yeah, next Wednesday. Yeah, next o'clock. Wednesday. Like Looking forward to that. Uh, uh, next Wednesday. Right, let's take... Uh, we've got about coffee now. Let's take another question. Gentleman right at the back there. Um, can George Osborne ever be uh, Prime Minister? Oh, there's lots of grumbling and head shaking, <laughs> which I think probably answers the question. Anybody got a different answer? I, uh, I've just reviewed Ed Ball's book, and um, I do think there's a sense that if you really get, get to the nod and you're, you, you have a really dreadful time in politics, you normally tend to come back and be rather loved in the end. So actually, William Hague, there was a time when everyone was sort of ridiculing him, and then now he's seen as rather a wonderful senior figure. And even Michael Bortillo, that these people who have a dreadful time in politics quite often do come back and are rehabilitated, and we do rather love them in the end, and we do rather admire them from having stuck with it. So if I were him, I would stick with it, and I think he probably will stay in politics. And I think he should, because I think he's a very, very good politician a lot of the time. And, you know, he, he got a lot of things right, and I think it would be a real shame if he everything was dumped on him. And I think actually too much was dumped on him and not quite enough on David Cameron. I think David Cameron was very lucky. He had a very nice exit. Everyone was very kind to him. He had a very funny last PMQs, whereas I think it was in a way, very sad that George Osborne wasn't given any chance to say goodbye and was treated really quite shoddily, I thought, actually, in the end. And I think he should have been treated better. And I think, actually, Theresa May, one of the few things I would say that I think she got wrong was I think she was too unfair on him and too nasty to him. And I think that'll come back to haunt her. He, he's a man of high intelligence and, and I think, good liberal principles. He's only 43, 44, 45. 45. Yeah. Uh, I, I think he may well uh, come back. He, there are two things he needs to, to beware of, and I, I'm, a, I'm an Osborneite. I, I would have supported him for the leadership, and, and I hope I may be in the position to do it again in 10 years' time. I, two things he needs to beware of. One is, is the, uh, the instinct to poke people in the eye. He just loves poking people in the eye. He just, he just can't resist it. He has this sort of <laughs> mischievous digot. Uh, uh, people and you make enemies li like that, and 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 um, it, it 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 isn't clever and it isn't funny, as my mother used to say. And and the 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 other is uh, it, it is important for him to travel the world now and to see Hillary Clinton and to to, to make sure that he stays in touch with all those people um, who are shaping world world events. And it'll be interesting for him to do that. But he doesn't want to attract the reputation of Champagne George. Um, look, look what's happened to Tony Blair. Look, look what's happened to Peter Mandelson. So I think some humble charitable work in Nottingham for, uh, <laughs> for a, a little while might, might be quite a good thing for his reputation. What do you, what do you make of George Osborne? Do you think he, he's, he's got it to uh, eventually become PM? Well, partly I think good riddance to him. 
I mean, Cameron has, has this reputation as Flashman, but I think Osborne deserved it just as much. He had a sneer about him. And he'd also, uh, you can't criticise a man for his look, because God knows what people could say about me. But he, as, as he went on, he sort of turned thinner and grey. He's sort of doing what Gollum does in The Lord of the Ring. <laughs> and, and I think he needs to, because people who know him well, and I don't, you, you're obviously friends with him. Danny Finkelstein is a very close friend, says he is a, a, a lovely, genuine, humorous, warm-hearted man. And I, I saw him recently give a speech at a Holocaust Memorial event, and he gave an extremely good, thoughtful speech there. There is good in him. I'm a bit like at the end of Return of the Jedi. You sort of have to try and get him to pick the right side. He's only 45. He could, he could do a, a Michael Howard. He came back and led the Tory party long after he'd been out of the cabinet. Um, but he has to want to. And I think you're right. He has to play an active role in Parliament. He has to speak in debates. Um, and, and there's every chance. Uh, because as someone who's just about to turn 40 myself, I feel it too depressing that someone five years older than me could have the end of their career. <laughs> Although actually the leader of the House of Lords is 40. That's depressing when you're the same age as the leader of the House of Lords. Excellent. <laughs> right, yeah, gentlemen down here. Have we lost the will to remain within the single market? Have we lost the will or have we lost the rights? Uh... Well, we, we, we've lost the right to remain within the single market. And I know people are now talking about some idea that the Germans want to sell us cars, so we won't have any tariffs on those. And we want to sell financial services, so they won't have any tariffs on, on those. But there, there are an awful lot of countries in the European Union, and they've all got their own interests. And no doubt France wants to sell us produce, wine, and, 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 and cheese. And there may be things that we want to sell France. And the, the idea that we could pick and choose and f find things that are somehow both to our advantage and to the advantage of the other side and end up with a kind of tailored, I think Mrs. May's people have been talking about a bespoke membership of the, the single market, uh, overlooks the reason why you have a single market. It's, it's because with a large group of countries, everybody has something where they would like to put up tariffs and something where they would like tariffs to be brought down and the only thing you can agree on in the end is to abolish all tariffs between everybody. You can't start picking and choosing and I don't think we're going to be able to. So we've lost the right, as Matt says. Alice, part of the trouble with a bespoke option is it tends to be really expensive, doesn't it? That's the and it, we could end up you know, there's no, there's the Norway option where you end up paying in money and we have a less good deal and still have to accept some freedom of movement in order to get access to the single market. I think it's going to be very, very difficult. And I'm not sure we should even be trying it in the end. I think you look at the French and you look at their reaction. I don't know. I was in France afterwards and, God, do they hate you us can't now. can't trust the French. <laughs> <laughs> but they're not going to make it easy for us. And the idea, you know, in Germany, Angela Merkel's been nicer, but, you know, her deputy, they're not happy with us. And they feel that so much is going on at the moment. They've got so many problems with terrorism. They've got so many problems with immigration. The last thing they need to concentrate on at the same time is on Britain. So... I think it's going to be very hard for us to expect them to be very nice to us. Right, let's take another question. Uh, gentlemen down here, we've got about five or ten minutes, so we'll try and get through as many as possible. Thanks very much. Is it uh, just coincidence that we have, out of the four speakers, we have three remainers and one undisclosed? <laughs> well, as, as I am uh, technically a reporter rather than a columnist, uh, even though the red box email sort of bridges that gap, I, I've never said which way. 
uh, I would go. And actually, as we, because I've done a few of these things in the Times, um, trying to find a Times columnist who backs Brexit uh, is um, quite difficult. And as you saw, Tim Montgomery was on before, and Melanie Phillips wasn't available. So, and, and because we thought it was more forward-looking, I accept your point. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll just blame the columnists. What, 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 what I would say... Uh, that, you, you, you've, huh? What did you vote? I've just told you I'm not telling you because I'm a journalist. <laughs> and No, but you've spoken almost as much as me so far this evening. So. <laughs> Thank you very much. It, like, it, it's really kind of Matthew to bring his dad along. But <laughs> I'm just going to answer your question. I, I raised that and I, I think that's a fair point. But in defence of my paper... Um, Press Gazette did an analysis of, of the coverage that all the newspapers gave across the referendum. And I was very proud that the Times was found to be the most balanced coverage. We did advocate through a leading article remain, but, it, but um, the analysis of the front pages and the columns felt that more than any other paper we had given due weight to both sides. So I hope the fact that we've got a healthy amount of Brexiteers here, um, you know, you're still reading. Thank you. Thank you for still buying the paper. And uh, we will try and carry on being as balanced as we can, although the columnists don't have to be. And, and there, was, there, there was a very clear feeling throughout the campaign that the reporters were there to report and not to blur that line, as maybe some of the other papers uh, may have done in their campaigning rather than just reporting what was happening. Right. Uh, a question uh, from the gentleman there. Uh, thank you. We've heard earlier on this evening that we're delighted that after 50 days of Boris, we haven't had a war. Theresa has a war on her hands. She's had 50 days of Jeremy Hunt repeatedly as health secretary. Matthew Parrish talked about politicians lying, and that he exemplifies that, I'm afraid. The European Working Time Directive destroyed postgraduate medical education. Is our obsession with Brexit going to destroy the NHS? <laughs> wow. Uh, I think I wrote a column. It sounds terrible. Did. I can't remember. I did write That's a column. I, you. Yeah. <laughs> I wrote a column this afterwards. I, was like, I, I think the problem with the NHS is that I think way before this it was crumbling. And I think it's, a, it, it's very difficult because there's so much goodwill towards it. And in another series that we did, we did talk to 150 people in the NHS about what they felt and where it was going. But there's so many areas where there are problems now. And particularly, you look at the amount of elderly people and how they cope and how they cope with GPs and what's going on. I don't think it's just a Jeremy Hunt problem. I think it's a problem with structure. And I think the Tories got it wrong. Junior doctors are going to have five-day strikes every month until Christmas. But that, it's, it's a wider Hunt problem. problem. No, it's oh. a wider problem than junior doctors. It's a structural problem. And it's a problem that maybe the Tories brought upon themselves because they did try and restructure the NHS in a way that I thought was far too complicated and actually they shouldn't have done. And I do think we need to think wider. And I do remember 10 years ago, we did think wider about whether the NHS really was going to be able to operate like this anymore. And I'm not sure it can. And I think just blaming one man is the wrong thing to do, really. I think we need to look at it far more widely. And we don't need to look at it just as Brexit. And I don't think it really has that much to do with Brexit. I think we need to look at it you know, cohesively and look at it and say, what do we really want the NHS well, we to do now? Well, I think we'll probably it's going to be very difficult with Brexit, but I think we need to. And I think... Theresa May needs to start looking at it. And I think the problem is it's one of the few areas she really does know very little about, actually. I don't think she's ever focused on it. And Matthew, it was interesting that Jeremy Hunt was one of the few people to stay in 
the same job in the, the dramatic reshuffle that she did. At one point, it was reported that he'd been sacked and then he was being moved, and then he walked up down the street without his badge, and then he came out and he had his little NHS badge back on. But it is, inter it is interesting mm. that despite all of that, she, she kept him in the same job. Well, when a prime minister keeps you in the job, it isn't always clear whether that's because they like and admire you or whether it's because they don't like and don't admire uh, you. And it's a kind of purgatory to, to be health secretary. And I think there's a pretty widespread feeling, though, across the cabinet uh, that, that it, it's, it, it's an awful job to do and that it's rather difficult to be health secretary without being called a, 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 either a, a liar or an incompetent and that Jeremy Hunt, for all, all the mistakes that he, he may have made, has managed to stay on his feet for most of that, that time. And I think we are moving towards an agreement with the junior doctors. The problem is the BMA. It's not the junior doctors. The BMA are using the junior doctors as a sort of battering ram. But, but whether in the longer term our model of NHS, our model of healthcare in Britain is sustainable and affordable, I, I don't know. And I don't think there's going to be a conservative government in the next five or six years that has either the energy or the, or, 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 or the courage or perhaps the electoral leeway to look at these things in, 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 the, in the root and branch sort of way that they need to be looked at. I think it's a, a difficult subject to get into when we've only got, got a few minutes, but the Tories... I do feel that they, they can't be allowed any policy on health, that uh, mm. there is a feeling... And, you know, even Labour health secretaries have found it a very difficult job. John Reid, famously, when he was offered it, I won't swear, but he said, OF, not health, when, when he was offered it. Uh, it's, it's no win thing. But I think, I think the answer is very obvious. It goes right back to the start of our, our discussion. We were talking about how Palmerston, the diplomog, is waging war on behalf of Boris Johnson against Larry, the Downing Street cat, while Gladstone is watching from the Treasury steps. I think the Department of Health needs a cat. I think they could call it Beverage, perhaps, or Bevin. And... Uh, and just put him in charge of the, um, uh, the department's Monday to Friday and let Jeremy Hunt work at weekends, as he's so keen on it. Let's I think we'll, we'll try and sneak in two more questions. Who's got a burning question they'd like to get in? A hand shot up there and a gentleman there with the glasses. And we'll do... Although I appreciate you've got glasses. In fact, almost everybody's got glasses. <laughs> maybe, maybe the time should increase the size of the font. Uh, let's... Um, <laughs> Let's start with the... Oh, you've got the microphone. Excellent. Yes, sir. Yes. Um, it's been interesting, the focus of this, not being a Brit myself. Um, I'd like to draw your attention to a BBC breakfast broadcast where they, about four days after the referendum, where they had a, uh, an interview with a Bavarian farmer and the BBC mistranslated it. They said to him, what do you think about Britain leaving the EU? And their translation was, we are sad that Britain is leaving the EU. And that's not what he said, and it's significant. What he said was, we are sad that Britain is abandoning us in the EU. So when I talk to my friends at home, I hear them muttering about rodents and ships, because Britain has contributed enormously to the EU, and we've been very grateful for that contribution. And the EU is in trouble, and it has bad things with it, but we've always hoped that Britain would remain within the EU and help sort those out, not walk away from us. And I hear people 
I'm not French, but I hear people talking about not trusting the French. There are few in Europe now who can trust perfidious Albion. Anybody else want to, to comment on that? This, this, this view that we haven't just, it's not just about us, it's about the rest of the EU as well. I think that's a, a, a very valid point, sir. And, and I'd be tempted to say, well, if, if, if the European Union wanted us so much, they should have given us some when our Prime Minister went begging for it. But that's not, that was the leaders of the European countries, not the people living in the European countries. I go to, go to France on holiday every summer the last few years. I've got friends there. They, they are very disappointed that Europe has left because they regard us as friends. And, and, uh, and uh, I, I just think it, it is sad if our, what, what brings us together as, as nations of, of Europe should be split because of this. I think even when we Brexit, we, we should remember that we are a part of Europe. We have friends all over the place. And what really matters uh, is that we beat the Americans in the Ryder Cup. <laughs> <laughs> Right, finally, there's, there's a lot of uh, responsibility on your shoulders. The last, last question over the back. Um, there was always a divide in the Leave campaign between those who led the campaign, like Douglas Carswell, who took a right-wing, libertarian, free-market, deregulated view of it, and actually the majority of Brexiteers who voted for it, especially in rural areas in the north of England, who, in the wake of the recession, felt insecure and wanted to sort of retreat from the globalised world. Is there a danger that if that libertarian right-wing vision prevails, that actually those who voted for Brexit are left feeling more disenfranchised than ever before? I think that's a very clever last question, I have to say, because I think it is very difficult. And I, think didn't, it was, I didn't organise it. It was a divide <laughs> that we didn't see coming, but I think it is a very crucial divide. I think it might be the next divide. And, and there are people who are very much... It's not backward-looking, but I do think your sense of UKIP, that there were people who really didn't want life to change and are pretty terrified of globalisation and feel that there's nothing really good about globalisation and all this modernisation hasn't helped in any way and they've been left behind. And I think the job now is to make sure that no-one does feel left behind, that we definitely need it to be the liberal globalisation forward-thinking outlook that wins, but we need to make sure that everyone else feels that they're taken in with that and they're taken up with it and that everyone does feel that they're going to benefit from it rather than that they're going to be left behind. Yeah, it's a very good question because it brings us full circle back to the, the, the subject of, of this evening's discussions, which is what does Brexit mean? And the answer is Brexit has meant some very different things to very different people, all of whom voted for leave. And It'll all come out in the wash in the end, and the differences uh, between the reasons for which different people voted uh, for leave will, will become clear. And I, I think we're going to have three or four or five or six or seven or eight or a, a, a decade of fractious and ill-tempered debate and argument about what we meant on June the 23rd. Patrick. One of the best rules in journalism is always to let Matthew Paris have the last word. <laughs> uh, so all I would say is that I mean, it's delighted, delightful to see so many of you here. We've, we've so, sold out faster than the Labour front bench. And it's, uh, uh, thank, you for, thank you for reading and coming along. <laughs>
by buying the Times, because that, uh, that keeps us all in jobs. Um, uh, thank you also for asking such um, brilliant questions. And let us do keep in touch and let us know what you think in the coming weeks, months, and years. You can email redbox at thetimes.co.uk. You can tweet at timesredbox or find us on Facebook. Uh, you can subscribe to the Redbox podcast. We can listen back to this evening via iTunes on your Android device, so it turns up on your phone uh, every week. And if you want political news, analysis, and gossip landing in your inbox every morning, you can sign up to my absolutely brilliant free uh, morning political email, uh, which yo, thank you very much. Uh, which I need to go home soon because I need to go to bed so I can get up it. Um, half past five to start writing it. Uh, but you can sign up to it if you aren't already. You're not going to be able to la leave the building until you have done. Uh, you can sign up to it at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox email. But for now, for Matthew, Alice, Patrick, and for me, for me, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Loading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.